Welcome to Spurs over 34 years. Back in March, YE1 Spurs anchorman Ian Wallace, Peter Wright and myself Simeon Wright began a lockdown project which set us the challenge of reviewing as many seasons as we could until Spurs were back out on the pitch. We made it back as far as 1986-87 and did it in the company of many special guests, each of whom you'll hear from over parts one and two. Ian Wallace explained the project on the 23rd of March, 2020. Good evening, this is YE1 Spurs and welcome to the start of our new journey as a daily Spurs podcast during this period of no football, which will set myself, Ian Wallace, and the regular YE1 members the challenge of reversing indefinitely through the annals of Tottenham time with a series of mini podcasts. You'll quickly get the gist of this daily series when we begin our journey by looking at the current 2019-20 season, then pick up the conversation tomorrow in the same format with a glance at 2018-19 season. But the journey is indefinite at the minute, and one we won't be finished until coronavirus is beaten and Spurs are back out on the pitch. Sadly, the coronavirus is not yet beaten, but Tottenham did resume the 2019-20 season on the 19th of March, which ended the project. Day 2 took us to 2018-19 and our first ever Champions League final. Peter Wright takes us back to that night. Well, I just remember we all sort of got together at my house, you know, it was just like a, it was like a party atmosphere. I mean, just the anticipation and the almost like disbelief that we were, it just didn't feel as though we ought to be there, but we were there and that... After after the semi final, it just kept. It just felt like miracles could happen. So if you're talking about the build up to the game, that was magical. Pete, you really have a real big rant about the Sissoko handball even now. It was just such an anticlimactic situation. I just thought Mane just sort of like lobbed the ball onto his hand, and I just it, I was just more frustrated about the collective shrugging of shoulders about it. I just thought it was outrageous, really. I don't know if I'm more frustrated about that game or the Pedro Mendes sort of like one yard over the goal line at Old Trafford many years before. We'll take a brief detour now because a man who was on the pitch that day at Old Trafford joined us to review 2004-05 former Tottenham and Sweden left-back Eric Edmund. Could you see it from where you were, that the ball? Because you would have been quite far away, but was it clear? Yeah, from my uh, my point <laughs> yeah. of view, it was definitely over the line, and it was over the line. But yes. I think if you take the assistant referee, he was also far away from the line, so he couldn't really yeah. say was it over or not because of the long shot from Pedro. We've not won at Old Trafford for years, like decades, I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, this clearly was like a yard over the line, you know, it was just... Everybody in the stadium could see it was a goal, apart from the referee, and it was just bizarre. And in the post-match interview, I was particularly disappointed, I suppose, with Martignol. I didn't think he kicked up enough of a fuss about it. I couldn't imagine that Alec Ferguson would have been so calm about that. <laughs> what was the atmosphere in the dressing room after the game? Now, obviously, a, a missed chance to win the game, you know, like yeah. you said. Uh, Spurs hadn't won for ages at Old Trafford and we had done it, actually. More from Eric later, including that screamer he scored at Anfield that season. But going back to 2019, Ian remembers Ajax away when Lucas Moura's hat-trick dragged us to the Champions League final. For me, as a Spurs fan this season, you know, I'll never forget Ajax game and it was like the final for me and yeah. and I, I, every time I watch it, it just gives me goosebumps. A YouTube video that was filmed by a fan in, I think it must have been in the Ajax end because you could see the Spurs fans celebrating on the other side, but it was, it was posted by a guy called Paul Henry. It was effectively a fan's perspective of the Lucas goal going in and you could see Pochettino running on the pitch, falling to his knees and I, I actually had tears in my eyes watching that he back was. a couple of weeks ago. It's, like you said, it's, it felt like, obviously we haven't won the Champions League yet, but it felt like, you know, the feeling of winning it would have yeah. been as good as that. I remember the Three Little Birds, Bob Marley thing they played at halftime. Don't worry. Remember? Oh yeah. And then, then a miracle happened. But we hadn't really played well though, had we? Like, no. like leading up to that in the, in the league. No, I mean, no. after Christmas, our form was just shocking, wasn't it? The malaise uh, and the staleness of the squad started with the Wolves game at Wembley and not, and the second half of that game. We were winning that game and we ended up losing the game 3-1 or something. That transmitted itself yeah. into the Burnley game uh, at Turf Moor, the one where oh, Potts got red, card, red carded. And I think you could, tra you could trace the calendar year going downhill from that moment. 
Maurizio Pochettino was of course sacked in November 2019 and replaced 11 hours later by Jose Mourinho. Why he won's 2020 to 1986 project spans 18 permanent bosses, including a joint management team of Doug Livermore and Ray Clements in the 1992-93 season. But Pochettino is without doubt one of the most popular in that time, and the 2014-15 season review took us back to the beginning of his five-year tenure. On 28th of May 2014, Southampton boss Maurizio Pochettino was appointed Tottenham manager. Assistant Jesus Perez, first team coach Miguel de Agostino and goalkeeping coach Tony Jimenez also followed, while Saints head of recruitment Paul Mitchell was complete the entourage in November. As the season progressed, fortunes did begin to improve as Poch doctored our bloated squad in his image, but not without some early season hiccups. There was respite for Poch while we stole victory in an injury time at Villa Park with a deflected free kick from a certain striker who is still yet to start in the league at this point. But the Argentinian was then forced to dismiss murmurs of the sack in November when Stoke became the season's third away victors at White Hart Lane. This is a YE1 archive clip from our second episode as Ricky described that match as his all-time Spurs supporting low point. So when Pochettino started, we had this game against Stoke, and it was, you know, Bale had gone, and I had this moment where I realised, Bale's gone and we've just lost against Stoke, and we haven't got any good players. I hadn't noticed this yeah. decline, and we, we had been really reliant on Bale. We were a bit of a one-man team, and uh, after he'd gone, I just remember this defeat against Stoke, thinking, under Pochettino, thinking to myself, we haven't got any good players. Sim, what, what, what do you think about Ricky's summary there? I agree with him to a very large extent. I think Poch came in and he it, there was obviously a lot that had to change. So we had a lot of dead woods that were still hanging over. And I think this, this season we're talking about now was the second season, but the very last chance in terms of a season that we were giving to the guys that we brought in to replace Bale. You know, people like Soldado who, who played a few games and that season and it took Kane as, as you you mentioned before about the Villa game it took Kane a while to be put into the start of 11 and we kind of wondered at the time was Pops being told to to try and make these signings work which clearly weren't working people like Kapu and Vlad Kirikes I think featured a lot in this season and you know, what Ricky was saying about that Stoke game I, I do remember that game we got beat 2-1 didn't we and you just you couldn't you couldn't see where where the side was going at the time the bloated squad Ian spoke about was as a result of the club's attempts to replace Gareth Bale in the summer of 2013 Spurs season ticket holder Dan Dawson reviewed seasons 2013-14 and 2014-15 with us and recalled that scattergun summer of recruitment. You know, I said yesterday about, you know, never let a football ruin a dead of football. You know, this, without a ball being kicked, we were all kind of going, this is the greatest summer of football ever because Spurs had just built themselves this incredible team that we're going to win the league and Bale wasn't actually going to go we were going to keep him and we'd have all of them to take on the top of the uh, premiership. Paulinho, Nasser Chadley, Roberto Saidado, Etienne Capui, Vlad Kirikes, Christian Eriksen and Eric Lamella all arrived in the summer of 2013 for a combined total of exceeding 100 million in a mobbed attempt to replace Real Madrid-bound talisman Gareth Bale. It was a lot like being a kid in a sweet shop wasn't it? Every day they seemed to have a new signing. How did you feel Sim being a lot younger at the time? Even if Bale was to was to stay, which some of us were kind of clinging on to that hope that he would stay, we kind of convinced ourselves that we wouldn't need him. The sheer kind of bulk of players that had come in and... Uh, I mean, Ricky's talked about how his goals were very misreported in Spain because a lot of them were penalties. But what we were hearing was that the three top scorers in Spain were Messi, Ronaldo, Soldado. Baldini, the, the technical director, was, was this messiah that had, that had come into the club and... He worked with Capello and the structure of the club was was going to be better. The structure of the side was going to be better because we were replacing one world-class player with seven top-class players. We signed three of them in one day as well, didn't we? There was a kind of a magic day on the in the window where we signed three in one day and we were like, wow, I mean, this is incredible. But that deal for Bale was, in that, was, was actually agreed ages ago. And he had the money in the bank, but he didn't want all the other clubs to know that he had the money in the bank because he thought all the people that he'd go to get would cost him twice as much. Such lavish spending naturally put inordinate amounts of pressure on manager Andre Villas-Boas, but a 3-0 home defeat to West Ham, a 6-0 loss at Man City and December 2013's 5-0 drubbing by Liverpool at White Hart Lane spelled the end for AVB. Tim Sherwood was given an 18-month contract, but that was terminated at the end of 2013-14. Pochettino built on Sherwood's work, most notably the rise to superstar level of Harry Kane. But it wasn't until New Year's Day 2015 that things really started to come together under Poch. Dan Dawson. I distinctly remember that kind of there was a lot of press 
and there was some rumours coming out from the players at the time that they weren't happy with the level of fitness work that they were having to do under Pochettino. I remember those first couple of months that you're looking at the pitch going, well, it doesn't look like they're fit enough. When he turned to the youngsters like Mason, who was a revelation when he hit the team. He was. He was trying to find those players who really wanted to put the effort into his pressing game and the fitness had to be there to do that. I think that 5-3 game on New Year's Day was, was a massive turning point for the club. Well, I, I distinctly remember that day. It was a late kickoff on New Year's Day, obviously yeah. hung over and going to football, but you get a late kickoff on New Year's Day it's the, and you get Chelsea. It's a fantastic one to get up for. And you know, I remember that they went 1-0 up, didn't they? And I'm thinking, oh God, I just want to go home now. And uh, they were, I think we were we were 3-1 up just before half time. I think we scored two goals in the last minutes of the um, first half. And all of a sudden, downstairs at the, at the Park Lane end, it was party time at, at half time. The beers were flowing. Everyone was party time thinking, well, this is, this is it's going to be a great result, isn't it? Although we considered three goals, I just thought we were just completely went at them and just Kane just seemed to develop this knack of scoring in London derbies and I just remember him hitting a reverse shot where he's just drifting across the box and then he just arrows it into the bottom corner in the reverse direction you thought well how's he scored from there and I think Danny Rose scored a really brave goal in that where he just he sort of dived in you know to finish but he knew he was going to get clattered and it changed the way that Chelsea approached the whole season. They went really defensive after that game. And Mourinho okay. started playing a less expansive way. The Argentinian manager twice missed out on becoming a Premier League winning boss as Leicester and Chelsea picked us to titles in 2015-16 and 2016-17 respectively. There was of course the Wembley period, which lasted the entirety of 2017-18 and most of 2018-19 before we moved into our new 61,000-seater home in April 2019. Ex-Spurs TV commentator Daniel Wynn describes the tearful moment when he commentated at the old White Hart Lane for the last time. I remember thinking, so this is it, this is the last game, we were going for the unbeaten home record as well, you know, for the whole season and I wanted the last sentence to somehow capture Tottenham Hotspur, capture the past and capture the future as well and what could I say and I was driving myself mad, honestly, for months and months and then I had nothing written down, I had nothing prepared and I thought, right, past, now and future and after the final whistle went, you do about 90 seconds wrapping up and I said, and this is it, Glory, glory, Tottenham Hotspur, and the Spurs go marching on. And as I said on, I finished, and the tears just came. I'm I'm welling up now just thinking about it. But that was the only sentence spontaneously that I could think of that got the glory of the past and moving on to the future. Yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful day. I remember all all my family were laughing at me. I was crying on the sofa like a... uh... But, you know, it's emotional. You spend so much time in in the stadium, don't you, going there quite a lot as a youngster. Theo Delaney produced The Lane, The Finale, which was the film which accompanied the last match at the stadium against Manchester United in May 2017. He also organised a ceremony which saw him facilitate the parading of Spurs legends onto the pitch. For Theo, it was fantastic to see the fans on the pitch too, and there was also a touch of Hollywood to the occasion. As a film director, what you what you learn over the years is that there are some things, not many, that they can't pin on you. But as it turned out, there were two fabulous elements to it, and there were yeah. two things that made it uh, memorable. Because the pitch invasion, you suddenly, when you when you look back on it, you think, well, actually, they were entitled to have 20 minutes on the pitch after 100 odd years. You know, the fans they want to do that. Why not? And they did it. And of course, the, the heroic clearing of the pitch by Paul Coit <laughs> was one of the great moments of the whole thing, yeah. you know. Yeah, this is it was so respectful. It was so respectful, wasn't it? One guy got him off the pitch. Yeah. And the thing about the rain, we thought, oh no, the rain, the rain, the rain. But it, it's almost added to the atmosphere. Yeah. And of course, the rain. What about the heavens opening on those designer suits? Yeah. I know, well, I did worry for the suits, especially Ginellas <laughs> and Cherryettes. They exactly, were particularly yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, what a privilege, you know. I mean, it yeah. was just incredible. I mean, I remember. When I was really in the in the when it was because it was it was it was tough, and I remember saying someone said and I, I didn't want anyone to know about it. I never spoke about it on the Spurs show. I didn't want any because I didn't want people saying, "Oh, you know what you want to do is you want to do this." And now what are you doing about this? And so I thought I'm not going to talk about doing it at all. I carried on doing the Spurs show. Never spoke about it. But I've got a few friends who are on the supporters trust, and they go and have meetings with the club. And the club told one of them, and he took me aside with about three weeks to go and sit up. A little birdie's told me you're doing the, uh, and I went, yeah, Jesus Christ, mate, it's a, it's a hell of a job. And he, and he looked at me like I was mad, and he went, yeah, but what 
what an honour. Yeah. And I said, I'd almost forgotten because I was in the Olympics and I thought, actually, oh, that's my Siri. Answering it. Answering it. He's, yeah. saying, he's saying, calm down a bit. <laughs> yeah. So the Kenneth Banner thing, uh, when, um, I can't remember what goal it was, Danny Rose, that film, yeah, yeah, when the Danny, Danny Rose, when you sort of cut, Danny yeah. Rose scores yeah. and it cuts back to you and goes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, yeah. You, and I think to have someone of his sort of... I mean, great yeah. attacks and stature. Yeah, that's stature, what it was all about. Like yeah. a real wonderful yeah. thing. But that's why I wanted to, again, I wanted to get him because we, we, it was such a moment of pride for the club and you need to, and I, and I was very keen to say, which they were... Very, 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 I mean, I had to do a big. I did a big presentation to them to begin with about how I saw it, and I thought it was really important to think of this club now as something that was a, you know, I hate the word brand, but in a way, it, you had to think of it as a world-class brand, and so it was so important to get the right caliber of person and caliber of everything for that ceremony, because in the end, Sky took it and put it out all over the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's so important to have the right kind of uh, connotations and values in it. So it was so important to, I knew he was a possibility, but the day he said yes, it took me ages to get him to say yes, because he was finishing off his movie, Murder on the Orient Express and all that. So we waited and waited and waited. And it, was a, it was a massive pivotal moment, because if we hadn't got him, it would have been tough. But he, yeah, he went for it. That was the Spurs Show podcast co-host, Theo Delaney, speaking about getting Kenneth Branagh to star in the White Hart Lane farewell film. Hear now from Ian's 12-year-old son, Casper Wallace, a regular on Why You Want Spurs, as he compares that ground with the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I think, I know what our name is small, but I think everybody's more engaged with like the players because they, they're closer to the pitch. Yeah. And the atmosphere, because it's a bigger stadium, you get more people that are wanting to come because it's new and it gives you, especially if you don't have a season ticket, and you might not be able to get a ticket for a long time. So, like, they put everything into it. They're quite it. grateful yeah. to be there, yeah. So then they put all that they have and people, like, lose their voices. Yeah. It's also the view of many Spurs fans that Pochettino's team peaked in that final campaign at the lane, going the entire season unbeaten at home. Peter, which Spurs team can you remember being on par with the one in 2016-17? Well, I've seen some great teams, but for energy, balance and just progressiveness. I'm going to go back to the 1986-87 season. Fittingly, 1986-87 of course turned out to be the very last season we reviewed. TalkSport presenter Paul Hawksby was our guest for that edition on the 16th of June, almost three months after we began our project. Glenn and Chris Waddle were the kind of creative constants. And it, I remember the system sort of freed Glenn up, that thing that, yeah. that England had never done. Richard Goff, you very quickly realised that he was a really good player. I mean, I mean, I think most Tottenham fans feel until Ledley was in his pump, he was probably the first time he'd had a, a centre-half as good as Richard Goff. I mean, it's incredible to think he only really played a season, yet he's sort of lionised really at the club. He's really fondly remembered. It was a shame we just didn't get more more out of him. And, and you know, he stayed for a longer period of time, a bit like Gary Mabbott did, because he was some player. Who do you think those key players in that midfield were, Paul, in that 4-5-1 um, team? Who do you think the key players were? You know, I've never looked at the assists, but I'd say, I mean, obviously, I, I imagine Hoddle made, would have made quite a lot of them mm. uh, when you look at that, and Waddle as well. But they didn't have to worry about what was going on behind them because yeah. of the work of some of the other players in that team, like, uh, you know, Ozzy was still playing, working hard. Paul Allen, like you said, was a bit of a dynamo. He, he was winning a lot of the ball and getting forward. And Steve Hodge when he came in sort of December time. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it was a good unit. I mean, that was the, that was the key to it, really, because the, the creative midfield players couldn't have done the work for Clive Allen unless, less, and, and that freedom that Glenn had, he wouldn't have had if he didn't have sort of people working hard behind him. In terms of, of, of entertainment, it was, a, it was a great team to watch. It was a fantastic team to watch, but slightly, tinged with the frustration of the fact that it was another another season we finished empty-handed. That was the great frustration because this team at this time should have won at least one of those trophies and just couldn't be consistent enough. I think they got they got stretched really on three fronts and it, it, it cost us. A big jump back through time there, but listen now to why you won Spurs regular, Ricky Swarbrick, pick out another Spurs team which he enjoyed watching 
Um, Ricky, can I ask you what what sort of team? Because I mean, this 2016-17 season was absolutely epic. Um, what what would you say, Ricky, would be a team in your era which would compare to it? Well, I totally agree with Peter on the '87 team. That was my team, really my first team. You know, I was nine or ten years old then, and that's the first team I really remember. You know, I was a, a kid and I had the shirt, and I was I really I really started getting into Spurs because of that team. Another team that probably doesn't probably wasn't as good as as this team we're talking about was the the Bale Champions League team 2010 when we had Modric that team is the one for me that comes the closest but um, wasn't yeah, quite agree. wasn't quite as good I agree with Ricky as well the the 2010-11 season the team was probably as a complete unit of a team was not as good as the one that we're talking about in this season but obviously the individuals in that team Bale, Modric mm. you don't you don't really need to say too much about them. Harry Redknapp was Tottenham manager in that 2010-11 season, which was just alluded to, and it reached the Champions League quarterfinals. Co-chair of the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust, Martin Cloak, looked back at seasons 2010-11 and 2009-10 with us, and was particularly glowing about that night when Champions of Europe Inter Milan were thumped at the lane. That Inter game at White Hart Lane, the atmosphere, you know, there's a bit of a myth that's grown up that the atmosphere at the old White Hart Lane was always brilliant, and it wasn't always. People used to complain about it sometimes kind of 12.30 kickoffs on a Sunday against Hull or whatever. But I, and I've been going a long time, I do not remember anything like it. Literally, it's a cliche. I thought the roof was going to come off. The noise, the, the exhilaration. And when that chant of Taxi for Micon started, and it started, I think, around the cage, and it just rolled around the stands and it got louder and louder and louder and everybody in that stadium was on their feet belting that out and we thought we were the kings of the world we're not just beating the european champions we are absolutely humiliating the european champions and people don't believe that bale didn't score a goal that night the whole team just really clicked and that was such a game and we started believing we could really do something Redknapp managed the club from late 2008 until the end of the 2011-12 season, but was not the most popular choice for supporters and club board members, according to Martin. Still, in 2010, Redknapp led us back into Europe's Premier Club competition for the first time since 1961-62. Martin Cloak. Remember that you know Redknapp wasn't a universally popular choice, was he, among, amongst the fans as the manager? No. And I think when we'd appointed him the season before, it was at a stage when that was really the only option. And everyone said, like, you know, Redknapp and, and Daniel Levy working together doesn't seem like a, a match made in heaven. But there was a bit of a suspicion among a section of the fans that Redknapp's transfer dealing wasn't necessarily what, what they'd have wanted. So that kind of added to the criticism that, that the club had, really, uh, about what was going on. But uh, again, you know, it, it, it's all relative, but we were... We'd very much kind of gone into much bigger territory as well, that we were, we were competing with the big boys in Europe as well. And a lot of those teams had got absolutely stacks of money because they were they were Champions League regulars. And that was our first season in the Champions League. So I think that was part of it. I mean, you know, without knowing who was available, you never know. But I think at the time, you know, we were certainly delighted at the Van der Vaart transfer. It was just a, a feeling of us trying to do it on the cheap. Van der Vaart, as good as he was, I think he was a last-minute present that Levy gave to Harry right at, you know, on deadline day, you know, and he turned out to be like a folk hero. But people like Gallus, I don't know, but Gallus did quite well for us, but wouldn't you say that he'd given his best years to the <laughs> the blue and the red scum of this city? Yeah. Wouldn't you have said, so, I mean, I, I just felt that we, we didn't kick on, no. The last six managers before Mourinho today were all sacked eventually. Pochettino, Sherwood, AVB, Redknapp, and prior to him, Juan de Ramos and Martignol. Those final two you'll hear more about shortly, but the last boss to resign from the job was ex-France manager Jack Santini, appointed to work alongside technical director of the day, Frank Arneson, in the summer of 2004. Santini was in charge for just 13 matches, and Eric Edmond explained to us why. His big, big problem coming to England was that he could not speak the language properly. Communication, yeah. Yeah. So mm. he could not communicate with, with media, also the players when we have team talks. Obviously, it's a man with a lot of knowledge, but he could not bring it out because he could not explain himself. He had his own assistant, who was Dominic Kupoli. He came with him and he could speak English. Eventually, you could see that he got frustrated with not working tight enough. The bonding between Frank and, and Jacques was not there, you know. Yeah. So eventually he got frustrated about that because 
what I heard, he didn't want to bring Michael Carrick in, for example. Yeah, which is curious because he, I, I regarded him as one of our best players and like I said, he didn't even have a squad number at the time. Yeah, and he was not playing in the beginning because Jamie Redknapp was the captain and he played when something he was the coach and the first thing Martin Yall did when he took over was to take Jamie out and bring Carrick on. Santini's assistant Martin Yall was given the job in November 2004 and his first league match was a thrilling 5-4 defeat to Arsenal at White Hart Lane. Yole almost ended that 40-plus year wait for Champions League football in 2006, but for food poisoning rippling through the first-team squad before our pivotal final match of the season at West Ham. We lost 2-1 and Arsenal picked us to fourth place. Ian, Peter and BBC Sport cameraman Chris Smith remember the devastation of Lasagna Gate. Peter, if we'd have qualified for the Champions League then, well, who knows what would have happened to us and Arsenal because, you know, they, they'd lost Vieira and, you know, they, they were on the wane a little bit after the Champions League. You know, our trajectory could have been massively yeah. big. They, they'd have gone into a, their new stadium with Europa League football. Peter, what's your sort of thoughts? Exactly. It's just that I was saying about the David Dean conspiracy, I thought they could not go into the Emirates not being in the Champions League. It was a bit like us needing to be in the Champions League and all the, at the time, the revenues involved in that. History might have rewritten itself if that hadn't happened with the change of hotels and Lasagna Gate. I totally agree with what was said there. The difference that, you know, as you just said, about Arsenal going to a new stadium, not in the Champions League. Us, with a, a young, youngish team, in the Champions League, we would have attracted a better standard of player for the next season, I'm sure. Yeah, it's definitely, as you say, a sliding doors moment that still, to this day, all these years later, makes me want to puke. Still, 2005-06's fifth-place finish took the club into Europe for the first time since 1999. We came fifth again this season after, but Yo lost his job in October 2007 and was replaced by Spaniard Juan de Ramos. Sam Cox graduated from the Tottenham Hotspur Academy around this time and is now a youth team coach at the club. Here's Sam. When one day came in, he obviously took over Martin Yole. And I remember Martin was brilliant for us young players. I remember we were schoolboys and the um, the day release programme had just started. So we would miss you know half a day at school. I'd miss a day at school to come in and train at the academy, almost preparing us for full-time football as such. Martin actually used to get us in and we would train with the first team in the afternoon. So as schoolboys, we would be missing like German lesson or English lesson. It was surreal really, because I, I actually came in quite late to the academy. I would do my maths in the morning and I would miss the rest of my periods at school. And I'd be going to train with Jermaine Defoe, Berbatov, Hosam Ghali, all them videos of core, all them boys. Martin Yol was so good with the young players and you know he always had an arm around the shoulder and I really loved Martin he was a top guy so when one day came in it was different it was really because he, he kind of created a separation between the academy and the first team whereas with Martin Yol the academy boys and the first team boys we sat together at lunch we integrated all the time we trained a lot with the first team when one day came in that access wasn't as frequent for sure the, you know we had to eat in separate places which is which is fine I think you should earn your stripes, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think opportunities into the first team became more limited and training with the first team became more limited too. I remember even when I think when Luca got injured at some point through that season, he actually did his rehab with the youth team when he came back and I learned so much from Luca and just the type of player he was and how someone who was not the biggest stature could manoeuvre the ball and look after the ball and you know, so we we were, we learned a lot from those players, but ultimately for us as apprentices, young apprentices, our focus was to earn professional contract. Sam Cox there talking about training with Luka Modric during the 2008-09 season. You heard a bit earlier about the Harry Redknapp era. Well, he of course arrived in November 2008 when Ramos had picked up just two points after eight Premier League matches. But it doesn't escape any Spurs fans' knowledge that he. Juan de Ramos was our last gaffer to lift the trophy. Let's focus a bit then on the episodes of the project when Ian, Peter and I were able to talk a bit about that winning feeling. There were only three, but working backwards through the seasons, the first trophy winning episode came when celebrity Spurs fan Anthony Costa helped us recall season 2007-2008. I bought a ticket off my mate. I had to go and meet him at Wembley. So my other mate who I went with had a ticket. I didn't. I was picking it. I was picking one up. 
and I gets there and I'm all excited mate. and then for a laugh he went my mate went Costa I've forgotten the ticket mate <laughs> oh, I was like what and you know you just try not to show that you're really upset because I'm a grown man and I didn't want to I didn't want to start crying and it was like Costa I've got it mate and then they, they went look we've got to go in and it um, was that moment of oh my what it's like being 12 and going into 15 and you can't get in the cinema and they were walking and, they, and like, they sort of walked and they kept walking and I'm standing there like thinking how am I going to get home now I've got to go and get a train and where am I going to oh, watch no. the game I've just been crushed everything. I was crushed mate and they went ah, ah so they, they absolutely, like, literally, five minutes before kickoff. Yeah. They phoned me and said, where are you? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm near the Wembley Stadium, Wembley yeah. train station. They went, Costa, we were joking. <laughs> 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 it's cruel. That is actual cruelty. And, uh, yeah, so I watched that game and, yeah, <laughs> it was Brilliant. unbelievable, mate. It was incredible. Yeah. Did you have some really good tickets? I, I swear I read somewhere. Not that I'm stalking you, Alan Partridge. Yeah, yeah. You still yeah. celebrate with Stephen Mangan. Well, no, yeah, well, this is it. I mean, I never knew you. I didn't know who he was, mate. And, yeah. um, he was two free rows in front and obviously I don't know who I'm cuddling who I'm giving a kiss on the cheek to or anything I don't know anyway the Woodgate's goal's gone in and I've just leapt I don't I just all I remember was leaping and just bundling these blokes and then amongst it was Stephen Mangan and I was like come on son come on <laughs> giving it all that and he's looking at me going who is this absolute <laughs> and then a couple of months later I see him on TV doing like probably like have I got news for you or one of them programs I was like I yeah. jumped on him <laughs> when we scored Brilliant. Because he had the long hair at the time, and I remember Zakora turning his back. He couldn't bear to watch. Those are my oh, memories. Yeah. Memories yeah. of that final. It was great to win a trophy, but is finishing in the top four like winning a trophy no. in the modern game no. for you? No, no. All right, you get Champions League football, and it's great. But if you're not winning trophies, it ain't good enough. You know, Harry Kane is not going to retire from Spurs, for example, and look back and go, oh, I became top scorer for Spurs for three seasons in a row and I've finished fourth, but I didn't win anything. That's not good enough. No, not good enough. I don't want to beat Ajax in the last minute, which was unbelievable, and then go play against Liverpool and play like 11 individuals. It's just yeah. ridiculous. The last silverware before that was in the same competition, the League Cup, or Worthington Cup as it was known at the time, as we beat Martin O'Neill's Leicester City 1-0 at the Old Wembley in 1999. Matt Bowers, another Y1 regular, was equally as excited as Anthony Costa that day. It was an awful game. I mean, I, I remember me, me and my other Spurs fan friend, we um, went to Croydon. We had a big fry-up and then we went to the pub about three hours before kickoff. So I remember bits of the game and then, I, to be honest, I was so hammered. When we scored, I think it was in the last minute or near, enough, near enough. <laughs> Me and my friend went absolutely mental. <laughs> and it was literally the worst game I think I've ever seen. But we won and it's that winning feeling which you can't beat. Terrible game, but just actually the lift that you get from winning a trophy. I think you, you, you take that all day long and I would definitely take that now. But Matt, did you feel after winning this, I mean, for me personally, I never felt like this was a platform for us to move forward. Matt, how did you feel? I agree totally. It was one of those, you soon realise in football that this is not going to become a regular occurrence, winning a trophy. It's just the nature of being a Tottenham fan. So when you do win something, you just, it actually means more sometimes in some weird way, because how many, how many trophies have we actually won in the last 30 years? Three. <laughs> Three. So, when we win something, it's a real occasion. You know, that feeling was so good. Walking, stumbling out of that pub in Croydon at sort of 8pm on that Sunday, having to get home, and thinking, it doesn't matter because we've won something. To put it into context, I was 10 last time we won something. Ian's son, Casper, who we heard from earlier, was born just days after the 2008 success and Danish midfielder Alan Nielsen's late winning goal in 1999 ended a wait of almost eight years from winning the FA Cup in 1991. Obviously it was a real scramble to get tickets for the final and I remember I couldn't get a ticket and I was really gutted because I've been to a lot of games that season 
And in the end, I ended up buying two tickets for me and my mate off this towel. And when I got my tickets, it had Barnet FC written on my tickets. Mm. So Stan Flashman, who owned Barnet at the time, he'd obviously sold his tickets that they got to the black market. And I yeah. paid £150 for my ticket. They were asking for people to send their tickets in if, they, if you bought them off a towel and I should send them in. So, and I, and I remember a few years after Stan Flashman got done for it. So I, yeah. I don't know if I'm the one who grasped him up. I couldn't get a ticket either proper double blow on the 15th minute Gaza let's be honest it was kind of his own doing when he completely crunched Gary Charles in the edge of the box and ruptured his right cruciate ligament unfortunately ligaments yeah, I saw him in the as they were walking out Venob was leading him out and he just looked so twitchy and then in the lineup for the national anthems he just looked like he was just twitching all the time like so he was good that like he was gonna kick off with him it just was too overhyped, I think, for that game. Yeah. Just somebody, yeah, needed to, somebody needed to rein him in a bit. Gazza went off, obviously. Uh, Naeem came on then, Peter. And yeah. Naeem had a great game, didn't he? I think people sort of forget how good he was. He did. Him and Paul Stewart were like unsung heroes in that game. Paul Stewart <laughs> just ran and ran and ran the channels. Yeah, he did. He worked so hard, didn't he? Also, Samways was good again. I mean, every, everyone was good that day, really. There was a bit of adversity. And do you think that we had a manager like Venables to, to have such a blow of your best player getting carried off? Venables, just the calmness and the assurance of Venables was integral to us winning that, do you think, Peter? Yeah, for sure. He had that experience and that sort of steadying sort of hand. He never looked flustered and he totally never transmitted that. I mean, I, I remember I was like really horrified. I was I'd watching the game and think, oh, we've lost, you know. When the Stuart Pierce free kick went in, you know, you know, it just felt like the whole thing was falling apart. But when your name's on the cup, it's on the cup. Hmm. I mean, it's not very often, but it was on that occasion. So, 2008, 1999 and 1991 were the three years of the project where we won silverware. But for each of those cups, we did have to speak about many a semi-final and final defeat. Too many to play them all in this podcast, but let's hear a selection. We'll start with the 1987 FA Cup final. First Ian, then Paul Hawksby. I was living in Dagenham at the time and I remember I got all dressed up in my Spurs gear and yeah. remember going to the tube at Dagenham which was West Ham country and getting a few funny looks on the Saturday morning early but I just remember being really, it just felt, I was skipping my step down to Wembley with like real much anticipation. You thought we were going to win. But I mean we, we scored early as you said Paul you know is a great header and you talked about his movement earlier, Clive Allen's movement there was just wonderful, he knew when to yeah. run, got on the end of that but then they sort of scored like, they scored quite quickly afterwards didn't they and I think that sort of set us back mentally. I think we were tired. I'm, I don't know about you guys, I felt we were tired in that whole final. If they scored a set, you know, if they'd gone on and, and they'd made it 2 0, yeah. I think, you know, but I think the equaliser took it out of their legs. And as the game went on, yeah. that run of games towards the end, even though he rested a few players, yeah. it told, you know, he just really told on them. But do you not think that, that we went 2 1 up then, didn't we? Mabbott scored just for half time. And again, I felt yeah. at the time, I felt momentum swinging with us. But yeah. did you think that we just. A bit jaded and thought they just like, strolled through the second half. Peter? Yeah. Did they have a winger, Bennett or something? They did, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bennett, yeah. He kind of gave us a bit of a torrid time. He did, yeah. But also, I don't know if you remember, um, Paul, who do you, I mean, Hoddle didn't really turn up that day. Was that your memory of that? Yeah, it didn't have, it was a, it wasn't, yeah, he didn't have a great game, did he? Yeah, it was, it was unlikely. It was, it was his final match. And for whatever reason, he just, he just couldn't get, couldn't get up for it and couldn't get going for some reason. He didn't run the game the way he could have done. I think the nature of their equaliser as well, the, the diving header, it was, it was, I think they got such a, a lift from the, not just scoring it, but the nature of it. Yeah. And I think then it, you know, it became a lot tougher for Spurs as it, you know, as it went into extra time. The other thing about that game, of course, is that some of the kits had Holston on and some of them didn't, which is uh, they, they, the BBC showed that game again a few weeks ago. Basically, the FA had never had a beer sponsor on, on a shirt in a cup final. And they weren't massively keen on the idea of there being a, a beer sponsor on the shirt. So uh, the legend goes that the kit man took two kits along, one with a Holston on and one without. And at the end, the FA relented and said Spurs could play in the, in the Holston kit. But basically, the numbered shirts came out to skip 
and they'd all got mixed up. So as the, basically the shirts went up and were hung up for the players with the numbers on, yeah. some had Holston on and some didn't. And no one noticed. I can picture those shirts now with, yeah. the, with the collar. Yeah. They had the collar. It's the first time they wore it because they wore that lovely Hummel kit, didn't they, all season? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Think, yeah, which is one of my favourite kits, actually. I think we've all agreed it's one of our favourite yeah, yeah, kits during the season. Let's jump 12 years now, and in the same competition, we were beaten 2-0 in extra time by two Alan Shearer goals for Newcastle United. Ian, Matt and Peter spoke about George Graham's decision to substitute David Ginola, our standout player of that period, in the 75th minute of that 1999 semi-final. Matt, does that sum George Graham up for you? Yes, absolutely, 100%. We actually played quite well in the actual 90 minutes because it went to extra time and we were really unlucky. I don't know if you remember, we had a stonewall penalty for handball which wasn't given in normal time, Peter. Do you remember that? I can't actually remember that, but I think it was all part of, this is the beginnings of our semi-final disease, which had started with that Everton defeat in 95. But we were unlucky because we played quite well and then the annoying thing is we go to extra time and then they get a penalty. Um, Campbell handballs it, you know, there's many like ifs and buts, aren't there? We just seem to be unlucky in these sort of, in the big games. We talk about this a lot, don't we, Peter? We just seem yeah. to can't get over the line, can we? Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit of bravery, uh, fortune and favour in the brave sometimes. George Graham, by nature, is a very cautious guy, rather hang on to what he's got, rather than kind of push the boat out. Despite winning that 1999 League Cup with us, the George Graham era was not an overly fond one for Spurs supporters, to say the least. And we'll look more at that in part two of Spurs over 34 years. But combining those three themes, Graham, Ginola and Cup Heartache, season ticket holder for over 30 years, Nick Frankel joined us to remember our UEFA Cup exit away to Kaiserslautern in the November of the 1999-2000 season. Nick was given the title of our Grim Recollections correspondent, as we also called on him to speak about 1996's 7-1 loss at St. James's Park under Jerry Francis. We'll spare you that clip, but here's Nick's trip to Germany. What can I say about the trip to Kaiserslautern in 1999? I remember getting up very early and going to Luton Airport where I parked. I went with official Spurs travel. That flight put us into Saarbrücken, which wouldn't be that far from Kaiserslautern. A coach transfer was then arranged to drop us off in the centre of Kaiserslautern at what was still probably only 10 in the morning local time. This inevitably meant spending many hours in the local bars, walking past their red light district. And I also remember, because it was a very cold day, I had to go into a local branch of CNA to buy a thermal vest. As the time for kickoff approached, the excitement built and the Spurs fans gradually made their way to the edge of town, which wasn't very far to where the stadium is. I think I managed to get into the ground uneventfully and it was only then that we got the line-up and to our horror, George Graham, characteristically, had left out David Ginola, but it was on the subs bench. That set the tone for what followed. It was a long rearguard action as we were defending a narrow 1-0 lead from the first leg. I don't think Kaiserslautern were particularly brilliant, but we didn't seem to offer much in attack. We nearly got away with it and the minutes were counting down very, very slowly. And then I think pretty much on 90 minutes, Jorkioff got amongst it and helped create not just one, but two goals, all scored in injury time then was subject to the normal thing that away fans get in Europe, which was being held in for ages. But eventually, we ended back up at the airport, which I think was a military base, and we were being corralled by gun-toting riot police until two in the morning. Finally got back to Luton in the middle of the night, hugely disappointed. Back into this millennium now, and there was Portsmouth knocking us out of the FA Cup at the 2010 semi-final stage. Here's the son of legendary midfielder, John White, Rob White. The semi-final we lost to Portsmouth yeah. at Wembley and it was yeah. freezing cold, yeah. miserable. And we you just thought- favourites. Yeah, yeah, mm. we were. That for me, that's the one that's, that's sticking in my memory as a, as a, a low point. 
think we might need some positivity now. Well, as you heard before, in that same 2009-10 season, we qualified for the Champions League with Peter Crouch's goal away at Man City. Ian Wallace, then Martin Cloak. I think tactically as well, we, we played well in that game. You know, we wasn't battered by them. Yes, they had some chances, but I just felt we controlled the game quite well and then sort of broke and scored. Martin, is that your sort of recollection of it? We did. I thought we played very well in the game. And I think the interesting thing about that is that City were at that stage absolutely loaded. And it was that people could see that, you know, it was almost like they were unstoppable. That, you know, they had so much money, they had so much resource behind them. There was no way that anyone was going to get in their way. And that's what felt even better because, you know, we were like, you know, the little side who had beaten the kind of massive money back side, which is, which is an unusual position in some respects for Spurs to be in. But it was so satisfying because they were starting to strut around a bit, weren't they? I think everybody yeah, they were. A club backed by a country. Is this right? And what does this mean for the future of the game? So it kind of meant even more when we won that. And as you say, you know, they spent all that money. We hadn't. And we talked about, you know, whether the team kicked on or not. And there's still the arguments about could we have done more. But the 11 Spurs players on the pitch were the better team that night. And we won that game. So you can't just buy success. You can't not spend money and have success. But it's not just about that. And it is back to how the 11 perform and the belief that they've got. And as people have said, you've got to give credit to Harry Redknapp for making them believe in themselves in the way that they did. Interestingly, you mentioned the money at Man City. I actually met up with Noel Gallagher at a songwriter's shindig not long after that City game. And he was saying that we better enjoy this moment because the money had only just come into Man City, but it hadn't fed through yet properly. You know, and that this was our moment that, you know, it was, things were going to change. And, and he also mentioned the fact that, I don't know if you remember the post-match, Harry Redknapp had a bucket of ice thrown over him. <laughs> well, well yeah. I have it on good authority from Noel Gallagher that he was not happy about that. I think it was David Bentley was one of the Bentley. main yeah, it was. characters in that. And he never played again because what he said was, that Harry ain't having it. It was a 400-pound suit probably yeah. <laughs> straight in the bin. Yeah. yeah. We digress nicely there, but sadly are now dragging us back to the 90s, which Ian routinely described as turgid throughout the project. Peter and Matt were asked a difficult question at the beginning of our 1998-99 season review. From the two relatively unpopular managers we had this campaign, pick your favourite. Swiss League marvel Christian Gross or League Cup winning yet Arsenal stained Spurs boss George Graham? Well, it's like... The lesser of two evils here. <laughs> you're going to want me to pick a favourite from those two. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. You're going to have to be begrudgingly the man in the raincoat, as he actually won us a trophy. Sadly, Gross had famously held on to his return underground tube ticket back to Heathrow. People didn't figure he was going to be there very long. That's a massive call, Matthew. Who was yours out of the two? Do you know what? I agree with Pete. At the end of the day, Christian Gross. I mean, he was only with us for nine months, wasn't he? Yes. I think when he arrived, there was real hope because no one had really heard of him. And you always hope, imagine we've just found like an Arsene Wenger type character who's going to change the way we play, make exciting football. And we soon realised after pretty two or three months, this wasn't going to happen. Real Spurs aficionados will know what Peter was on about when he spoke about Christian Gross and travel tickets. The following clip mentions that again, as Ian, Peter, and a new voice on this podcast, Bob Jordan, looked back at the transition from Jerry Francis to our new Swiss manager in 1997-98. Peter, I don't know if you remember, Francis famously didn't wouldn't sign a contract because it was just a handshake. He was a real man of principle. But he actually resigned. He didn't get sacked by Sugar. Do you remember that? Yeah, he did. He, he walked. I suppose when we got him, you could say it was a mulatry coup. <laughs> shocking, shocking. Sugar held Francis in quite high regard, actually. And I don't know if anyone knew this, that Francis received the best record over the first 50 matches of any Spurs manager. And then, as Sim says, the Messiah came along. Obviously, we know the famous thing coming on the tube. Brand for the Lips. One day travel card or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently he said... Um, I want this to become the ticket to my dreams. Bob, do you remember him getting a rough time with the press straight away by just by saying that? Then you derided. Yeah, I mean it was perhaps a little bit. Yeah, I mean he was he tried to portray himself as a man of the people. 
again, he was like a manager I'd never heard of from a minor league team, and it was it was a bit of a punt, I think, from Sugar. And then he's got Christian Grossing, who was successful in a small league. Dark days. Gross's team narrowly avoided relegation at the end of that season as Jurgen Klinsmann returned on loan in the January of 1998. With three games to go, we had three absolute crunch games in the... In fact, I'll probably go back to the four games. I think we went behind at Barnsley. Barnsley went down in the end. But we went behind to Barnsley and it was only a colder would go in the second half that equalised in that game. It could have been disastrous if we lost that game. And we seemed to just pull it together in the last three games. I don't know if any of you were at those games but you know we went into the, the last three games we had Newcastle, Wimbledon and Southampton at that point we were only two points clear of the bottom bottom three and in 17th so it's pretty, yeah. pretty dangerous I mean, we, we, just to remind you guys we got 44 points and Bolton went down with 40 so it's pretty close but I mean I remember going to the Wimbledon away game Peter I think you went as well and Bob I think you went as well yeah you? I went yes yeah, yeah. The bright sunny afternoon that was unusual for Southampton Park actually usually a freezing January even Sahib scored didn't he Peter yeah our safety was secured Sugar talked Klinsman into coming back didn't he invited him onto a yacht in Monte Carlo Alan Sugar had some less than complimentary things to say about him when he left was it two or three years earlier yeah, brandishing the number 18 shirt on live TV. He said, I wouldn't actually use this shirt to wash my car. I can't somehow picture Lord Sugar out there with a sponge and a bucket of soapy water washing his car down on a Sunday, well, on a did, Sunday morning. They, yeah. did come, they did come from the hood in Hackney, didn't they? So you never know. Yeah, it scored four goals that day. It was one of the games you couldn't get a ticket for love nor money. I actually ended up getting one off of the town and sitting in the Wimbledon, not the Homestale ends, like the Sainsbury's end part. I remember sitting in there, which was, again, was probably three quarters Spurs in there. It's unbelievable that, that you know, that a team of our stature and presence, you know, a big, a big club just managed to avoid relegation, but we did avoid relegation that time. And I just, just wanted to point out something that David Pleat was appointed director of football in early 1998. So that was sort of Sugar's big, you know, attempt at becoming a bit more of a modern club, I think. Do you guys remember that happening, Peter? Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. Because I always thought of to have a good tactical brain, David Pleat, and uh, remember his five-man midfield with Clive Allen at the top. We'll get onto that 87 team in due course. We spent big that season. The outlay for Janola and um, Ferdinand, at the time, considered quite a, a substantial amount of money. Was that four million for Ferdinand and two for Ginola? I think six for Ferdinand, two oh, for Ginola. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think it was. It was eight between the two. I think it was six and two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. They were big players, you know. Ginola, that was a massive, yes. massive buy for us at the time. I remember being quite excited in pre-season, Bob, before the season started. I felt, wow, that's that's a good statement. That was the year Alan Sugar came out with his famous Carlos kicker ball story and said I'm, okay. I'm not signing any uh, Carlos kicker balls and we signed Ginola anyway and Ferdinand but for me Ferdinand was hugely disappointing Ginola was was another flair player but he was a flair player in a struggling side another key point at this time was Darren Anderson over the season the 90 the 96 97 season Anderson played 17 games and I think it's probably no coincidence. At the time he had serious injuries, Spurs did start to drop away. Attention will turn to the Glenn Hoddle management period later on, as well as the ownership transition from Alan Sugar to Enoch. But a quick retreat first to the only other relegation battle we covered during the project. Another Spurs legend, Ozzy Ardiles, was our manager for the entirety of 1993-94 and a bit of 94-95 before he was sacked and replaced by QPR boss Jerry Francis in November 1994. Spurs supporting actor James Hillier, formerly on the cast of EastEnders and Netflix series The Crown, reviewed both those seasons with us. Going in towards the end of the season, we were nearly going to get relegated. We lost 2-1 at home to Wimbledon. But then we had Oldham Athletic away, like in a must-win game. That's a win away at Oldham. I mean, how low has Spurs got? Their players were very pumped for it. And I seem to remember they were all really, really very, very muddy. Like, <laughs> yes, <they> look, correct. <laughs> 
they looked a total mess. I don't know, maybe the pitch wasn't great or something. So they looked like they put in this real shift. All of a sudden, they were like, yeah, yeah. let's do it now. I think Oldham had like a bit of a fixture backlog and that sort of worked in Spurs' favour because, I mean, going into that game, we had to win that game. Otherwise, we're going to have to beat QPR at home in the last game. And I remember the game was on a Friday night, I think, live on TV and the pitch was shocking. And you know what? We sort of played quite well that night and I remember Samway scored a beautiful goal after about just for half-time and that sort of calmed our nerves a little bit. And then I just remember we controlled the game and then... Howe scored about 80-odd minutes. But I remember the fans were brilliant that day because they really stuck with the team. So I think, you know, imagine, Peter, if we had got relegated, how much that would have put the club back. Would have been catastrophic at the time. So the crowd did really see what was going on and rallied behind the truth. Do you think that, basically, this season set the tone for Sugar going forward? knowing that he had to invest, given that his paltry or the players he bought were so bad, do you think he realised, I need to invest every season? Do you think this was like a turning point for Sugar in yeah, owning so. the club? Yeah, I think it's sort of a bit of a wake-up call. You know, it says, look, I, I better back him next season. Sheringham being injured so much, you can't really pass judgment on a manager if he's not been backed. Give him a summer yeah, and, and back him properly and see what he can do. That's what he had to do and that's what he did the following season, I guess. To be fair to Sugar, he did back Aussie that next season, and 1994-95 turned out to be a particularly memorable one for many Spurs fans. Characteristically, we did finish trophyless, having been beaten 4-1 in the FA Cup semi-final at Elland Road by Everton. But seventh place represented a good season for Aussie, then Jerry Francis's team. I'll let the clips do the talking for a while. We started the season well with three wins in our first four matches, but the form dropped, this form dropped off as early as September, and by late October we'd fallen to 13, following a 5-2 mauling at Manchester City's main road and a League Cup humiliation four days later to Notts County. Peter, a lot was made at the time, and has been made since, about Aussie's gung-ho approach. How did you feel about Aussie's management of the team? And was he a dead man walking at the start of the 1994-95 season? Yeah, if you think about it, like if he's finished 15th the previous season, you know, he's going to have sort of eyes on him, isn't he, at the start of the season. Got to hit the ground running. I don't know if you would say dead man walking, but definitely the pressure was on, pressure was on him. I think, in hindsight, his philosophy of playing that really attacking style seems to have been maybe ahead of its time and more progressive than most. I mean, when you look at the way teams like City play now, yes, there were defensive frailties, but... I think history looks back at Aussie with perhaps a kinder eye than you would imagine. The thing that always stood out for me at, at Tottenham was that there was always someone who really inspired you. There was the Hoddles or the Gascoins or the Linkers. And yeah, Sheringham was there, but he wasn't necessarily a player that you would go and see just for what's he going to do. But when Klinsman turned up, and certainly after that first game at Sheffield Wednesday, you were just thinking, "There's, a, I'll go and watch this game because of him. And I, that, that made a huge difference, I think, to the way Tottenham felt. It felt like Tottenham were back. With those five, Sheringham, Anston, Barnby, Klinsman and Dumitrescu, he could set the world on fire. And that first game... And that dive, you just thought, wow, this is it. We're going to do it. And then, yeah, it didn't last so long. The Sheffield Wednesday game, I was, I'd been up in Derby visiting my mum, not that far away from Sheffield. And I remember watching the uh, choreographed dives as that goal went in. <laughs> and they all sort of dived, like five of them. That was just a moment that's etched into my memory. A little more context on that season in a moment. But during the project, we were lucky enough to chat to ex-Spurs striker Steve Slade, who broke into the first team in the following season, 1995-96. Steve went into a lot of detail about training with the likes of Jurgen Klinsmann. It was Gaza, Lilica, Naeem, Barnby, and, and, it was a and then it was a Christmas tree formation people, wasn't it? Like, yeah. I yeah. think we had like seven strikers at, at once. But <laughs> yeah. I was obviously I was still young. Ozzy signed me and then I think Jerry gave me my first game. When, when you were in the youth team there, before you sort of signed professionally, who would you say was the senior player who gave you the most help and advice? Razor. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Razor, yeah, I used to come in with them because basically, you, 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 obviously as a youth team player, I know it's a bit cheeky, I'm, I'm going to say, but as a youth team player, you used to have to go into the ground and then from the ground go to the training ground. 
But Razor used to live around the corner to me, so I just used to jump in with him. And uh, I didn't clean the balls in bed for me. I used to get in trouble for that. I just getting the train and that in the morning. Yeah, I'm sure. It must have been quite interesting being in the car with uh, Razor, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I used to let me drive, so I was happy. Because after training, they'd, we'd hit them. Um, obviously, then I didn't drink, but they would um, go to TJ on Fridays. Oh. So they'd have, mm. they'd have a couple of drinks, and then uh, obviously let me drive home. So I was, like, I was buzzing, but obviously if I finished a little bit later, he'd leave, and I had to get the train home, so I was really annoyed. Oh, God, jeez. <laughs> Did Reza give you any dietary advice at that time? <laughs> no, he said he gave you... If you see what we had for training, like after training, we had, it was Sue used to cook for us in the, in the hut there at Mill Hill, and um, we used to have burgers and sausages and stuff like that. Like, wow. you'd never have that nowadays. It was the, the, the diet was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Oh, really? And then I think when I left, um, Chris Armstrong said that Christian Gross yeah. came in and he said he just completely changed it. What was it like working with uh, Jürgen? Did you and the strikers work together? I, oh, he's a legend. Absolute legend. Such a nice guy. Always helping. He's the fittest man I've ever seen. He came in an old banger beetle. Actual real football, if you know what I mean. Like, he, he loves football. You never see him going out, getting drunk. You never see, like, see him swearing or getting angry. He's always got time for the kids and fans. And you just like, that's who you want to be like. During your time there, do you think he was the best trainer you've ever seen? Yeah, 100%. What sort of stuff would he have done in training? He was teaching us how to do diets, obviously. <laughs> teaching us how to head the ball, like diving headers, volleys. Like anything, anything good, he can just, he would you just watch him like, just stand there watching like if you can like a reserves for you like you know like you do the team games and you've got the game on the first I just used to stand there watching like, Slade, you got to do that oh yeah sorry bloody hell I'm watching him it's just because you've got him you've got Naeem just doing tricks all the time it's just like oh my god these guys are amazing like, what was it like sort of being in and around someone like Teddy Sheringham because obviously you played with him a few times up front with him what was it like being around him was he very helpful for you no not sure was he not no He's very selfish. That really shocks me because he comes across as a bit of Mr. Nice Guy. Well, he wasn't nice to me. Do you think he felt threatened by you? No, I'm a kid. <laughs> like, well, obviously, he can't feel threatened by me, but obviously he's a big name. But I, I'll be honest, I never rated him as a Spurs striker, if you know what I mean. It's like, for me, he's not a Spurs striker. He's lucky, isn't he? Because you don't get strikers like that anymore. You just... Um, you know, got no pace, but he's good on the ball, but you don't get strikers like that now, do you? They're all fast. I'm surprised, I'm surprised to hear you say that, Steve, because uh, he comes across as the guy that most strikers would like to partner up with in terms of... Yeah, no, I, didn't. I, I used to hate playing with him. Chris Armstrong, yeah, 100%, but they would never play us two up front together. You're quite similar, I suppose, weren't you? I suppose, yeah, thinking about that. But in, as I said, in training... We would, me and Chris, we would like absolutely terrorise them. Exceptional insight from Steve there, albeit quite divisive regarding Teddy Sheringham, who scored 98 goals in 197 appearances for Spurs between 1992 and 1997, then more between 2001 and 2003. Time now to complete the 1994-95 clips with Ian, Peter and James. We actually spent about eight odd million that season and I'm just going to give you some context as we normally do. The other clubs spend it. Arsenal only spent a million, Everton three million, Liverpool nine, West Ham five million, Blackburn seven million. They went on to win the league that year. Leeds three million, Chelsea five, Forest six million, Newcastle eight million. We spent big that season, so no one could accuse Sugar, as we have done a lot over the years, of not splashing the cash. I mean, we mm. started that season with these fines we had 40 charges from the inland revenue of malpractice and most of these charges were for transfers in late 80s and the key transfer were three players central to it Mitchell Thomas Chris Fairclough and Paul Allen so for Mitchell Thomas and Chris Fairclough when they joined they were paid a loan which they never paid back both of them and Paul, Paul Allen was given some type of ex gratia payment, which is basically a bung in layman's terms. And that was under the Irving Scholar regime. And the great thing was, Sugar, when he sort of came in, he actually came in and held his hands up. You know, honesty is the best policy. That was possibly why we did not get relegated. Because Swindon, a few years earlier, they did exactly the same. They were they had oh, malpractices yeah. in transfer dinners. Yeah. 
and they were relegated two divisions. So the fact that we sort of come clean, possibly Sugar's not given as much credit. We had a 12-point deduction, we were thrown out of the FA Cup and we had a £600,000 fine. But Alan Sugar was actually brilliant because he appealed against this. He was incandescent with rage and you know, he won the appeal in December 94. The FA said, well, you're going to have six points deducted, you're still out of the FA Cup and they increased the fine to £1.5 but Sugar was still furious with it. You know, he'd come clean. It was a previous regime. And then on the second appeal, Sugar won the appeal again. So all our points deduction was taken away. We were put back in the FA Cup, but the fine was still 1.5 million. But, you know, 1.5 million was pretty, it was a chunky fine then, but a small price to pay, don't you think, James? Absolutely. And he did the right thing to pursue that because I think, wasn't it in the end, it was sort of seen to be not within the law to actually make a points deduction they could do the fine but actually the points deduction wasn't actually legally didn't stand that, up that I think. we got hammered at ellen road i mean uh, uh, I, I think this game sort of got away because it wasn't a 4-1 game but it's just interesting that um, gary mabbott says about that game i mean Leeds stadium ellen road has got one massive great cantilever stand and then three smaller stands but everton had the allocation of the three smaller stands and we had the big stand and gary mabbott just felt like the noise made it feel like an away game for us, which is interesting, uh, isn't it, Peter? That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, I do remember, remember Mabbott's comments about it, it just didn't seem fair. There is a, a music story surrounding this particular game. It's one of those if-only moments. One of the, um, the music executives at London Records, who was working under Pete Tong at the time, who's a massive gooner, actually, but the, the, his assistant, Phil Howells, was a big Spurs fan, and, he, and I'd just done a record for them, and he'd asked... He'd asked me to have a bash at a cup final song. So uh, me and my co-writer, Ben Roberts, gave it our due diligence and wrote down ideas and began to build up a music track. With most of the work done, I took the afternoon off and uh, one of these peculiar things in my psyche, I decided not to watch the game for some whatever reason. I took an afternoon break, it was a nice day, and I, I went off into the countryside trying to avoid the score. Later that afternoon, there was like uh, several messages that I returned to from Ben saying, have you seen the score? <laughs> so I did it. I had to scrap, scrap it all. I was, I was gutted. Uh, I'd have had Klinsmann, um, Klinsman, Sheringham, Barnby, Anderson, all in the studio giving him, oh, vo- giving him vocal direction. If only, Peter, if only. Well, that brings us to the end of Spurs Over 34 Years Part 1, which has lurched excitedly between the years sandwiched by 2020 and 1986. Hopefully you've enjoyed the nostalgia, and we'll tune in again for Part 2, which will begin at 2001, an eventful year both on and off the pitch. Find us on Twitter, at YE1Spurs, and give us your feedback on the podcast. Plenty more to come in Part 2, and thanks as ever for listening.